Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. To the top story, the president raising the pressure on Beijing once again to strike a trade deal, announcing he would increase tariffs on $200 billion of Chinese imports Friday to 25% from 10%. Also floating the possibility of extending a new 25% duty on another $325 billion of imports not already covered. So the judgment call you've got to make this morning is this material escalation or the beginning of intensified negotiations. Here in the studio to help us answer that question in New York is Tony Dwyer, Canaccord Genuity Chief Market Strategist. Good morning to you, Tony. Good morning, John. So help me answer that question. Which one is it? It's impossible to say. I would guess more, and it's a guess, is that it's more intensified negotiations. <laughs> you know, just remember two weeks ago or over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking for a little bit of a pause in the upside. You know, wrote a report called Cause for Pause, and part of it is volatility was so low and expectations had become so good that when it gets like that, you so if it wasn't the trade negotiations, it would be something else. It would be a Fed comment. It would be an earnings comment. It would be a political comment. There would be a yeah. reason for a pullback, and I think that tariffs and the tweets kind of certainly have have that uh, excuse. Well, the calm is broken. The VIX up five points this morning to 18.21 on the VIX. The judgment call also involves what you anticipate the Chinese do next, how the Chinese respond. From what we understand here in Bloomberg, there has been what could be considered a media blackout on the president's tweets within China. We understand from the foreign ministry in China that officials are still planning to travel to the United States for the next round of talks. We don't know when. There is a subtle sign there that they are considering delaying the trip. How do you anticipate that, Tony? As a market participant this morning, that's the big unknown, how China responds. How do you think about it? I think it's impossible to make an investment decision off of a tweet. And if there's one thing that I can convey to the listeners, please don't listen to people like me when they actually make an investment recommendation off of a guest like that. I think what I would ask the listeners is they're driving in their car. Yep. If interest, the 10-year note yields it at 248, the five years down five basis point. You've had an extraordinary drop in interest rates. At the same time, money available, money is still available via bank lending. So I asked the question, does the presidential tweet prevent you from refinancing your debt or taking out new debt at the lower debt level? Every house in, in northern Bergen County where I live that was for sale is now under contract because mortgage rates have dropped 100 basis points. Those people don't really care about the tweet. So has anything changed this morning for Tony Dwyer and Canaccord Genuity and the team over there? No, because we've, you know, it, people like me are famous for saying this. We've actually been looking for a pause. The question isn't whether the market can correct. The question is whether you use it to take advantage of better op opportunities and equities. Yeah. What, what we try to do here, folks, is frame moves. Obviously, there were two presidential tweets among a zillion of them uh, <laughs> this weekend. Obviously, had an effect on markets, but John and I kill ourselves every day to frame words like cratered, crushed, <laughs> I'm decimated. Seeing, I'm seeing headlines well, we, we like to plunge. Put numbers, we like to put numbers with them. Okay, folks, let's frame it right now. From the peak, Dow is down 3.6%. It's, it's not even a mini correction uh, or whatever. And very importantly, John, to the more short-term space, people that are looking at the markets since you're the real yield on Friday, 
we're down just a little over two standard deviations on Dow, which statistically is totally normal. Totally normal. And I'm seeing the headlines plunge. The Dow plunging right now. Well, let, you know, I think let's do the best service we can for the listeners. Okay, so let's say it's down 3%. How do you know if it's going to be down 5% versus down 15%? And the answer this cycle, the three major drops, 2011, 2015, 16, and 2018, were all driven by expectations for significantly higher rates from the Federal Reserve. QE2 was being withdrawn in 2011. That was driving rates higher. 2015, 16, the Fed had started raising rates. 2018, they really raised rates. That's not the scenario here. If anything, the trade right. tension is going to lower expectations of rates. I, I want to get Tony just away from China and U.S. and all that. How do you value now differently double-digit revenue growth? Without naming any companies, if, if it's a low-yield environment, that revenue growth is ever more value, isn't it? It is because it allows, you, you, it allows you to do so many things, Tom. You could buy back stock. You can increase capital But what spending. ratios do you use to show those differentials of of better than good revenue growth. Well, it's 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 more of don't function tell me the of, PE ratio. It, it's it's more. Well, there's two things that go into the valuation. There's price and there's earnings, and and what you're willing to pay for those earnings goes up significant or revenue goes up significantly when interest right. rates are down because you don't have as many alternatives to that money. Taylor from San Francisco emailed in John and said, "What about price to sales? Do you use price? Are you on the edge of Tom Galvin, the giant at Donaldson Lufkin Generet?" And Credit Suisse years ago? I, I price could, to sales matter? No. This is equity of course, talk, Of Jim. course, over I'm, time I'm it matters. <laughs> and price to sales ratio has been very, very high for a very long time, and it hasn't mattered. What I try to do is focus on whether something's right or wrong, I don't really care. I What I care about is what other investors use to value what they're doing, and price to earnings is is what the institutions use to price their equities and price the overall market. So I focus on that rather yeah. than other ratios that might make more sense. So Tony, I think this morning is a great morning to, to recycle something we often do with you, and that's discipline. Maintaining discipline when there's so much drama going on around you, like me in this studio right now trying to anchor with Tom Keane. If you remember <laughs> December, December as the world seemingly is falling apart, and Tony comes on with us and talks about maintaining discipline and ignoring the drama around you. At the time, it's easy just to say, Tony's a permabull, he's always saying bye. Then when we reflect on it, it's easy just to say, you know what, with hindsight, it was so obvious. Why wouldn't you buy that weakness? The Fed was going to back away. Help us on a morning like this morning, maintain discipline as you see all these dramatic headlines about an escalation in the trade war and how it could get a whole lot worse from here. Discipline is not making a decision based on a guess. Two days ago, we're close to a deal. Everybody's on TV. Everything's looking good. And then over the weekend, no deal. Everything looks horrifically bad. Ultimately, what should drive, in my opinion, uh, what should drive an investment decision, again, falls back to do the people listening to this show have access to money? Do companies that are on this show and pay for the advertising have access to money? And as long as that answer is yes, I, I am obviously not very good at calling for 19 to 20% drops because I didn't expect what we got in December. No. But I, I will say the reason that it was to be bought was <clears throat> yeah. because the answer to that, those two questions are yes, we have access to money. Doug Cass emails in. He says, kindest regards to Anthony Dwyer as well. Mr. Cass will join us later today, I believe. Yeah, Dougie's the um, best. Some of our selected networks. When, when is Doug coming on? 
later. He's during your, you know, he's why probably... Is he always, why you know, is he always he, avoiding me? Why he, I, I, well, here's a great... You've got so many other properties. I mean, Can we go off topic for a second? Here's a great example. Why, it's Monday. Doug and I, over the last two weeks, have been on the same side of the trade. I've been looking for a pullback, and he's, I think, looking for a bigger pullback than me. But the whole status of what... Listen to what people like us say. Don't no, no, go wait, by what wait. you know you think you, we're going to say. You believe in the Yankees? Of course I do. Oh, God. Oh, come on, Yankees, Giants. Jeez, Tony, Tom. thank you so Jeez. much. Tony Dwyer, Ken Accord, Genuity. Uh, Her book is Why Presidents Fail and How They Can See, Succeed Again. Ellen, Elaine Kamark, rather, Elaine Kamark of Brookings. She's been on many times before. And Elaine, instead of all the Mueller stuff in that, I just want to talk to you with your scholarship about our tweets policy, as Mr. Farrow just mentioned. Are these tweets policy? Well, I haven't actually sat down and counted them, although it's a good it's probably a good thing for a scholar to do. Uh, the fact is that sometimes the tweets are literally the president's random thoughts, and at other times they change policy. Now, I've been scouring the newspapers this morning trying to see if this looked like it was a concentrated effort to move the China talks in some direction or whether the president's negotiators were as surprised about this tweet as everybody else was. These China talks are nearing their end, um, and suddenly the president throws this into the middle of them. It could be a considered negotiating tactic, or as we know with Donald Trump, it could be just something he woke up and decided yeah, but to do. What's your experience of what staff does i mean there's you know let's say is a round number like the lincoln white house there's 20 people in the white house trying to get through the day how do they respond at 750 wall street time to these tweets of the weekend well i think they go scurrying to the president into the oval office as soon as they can and they say look here's where we are with the negotiations um, the Chinese are supposed to be here soon. Um, what does this mean? Is this something you're doing for tactical purposes? Or do we have to now negotiate with this in mind as something full? And, you know, these these negotiations were going on quite well, right? There's still a lot of things, however, the Americans want out of them, as there always are. And um, it's possible that this is a sound negotiating stance uh, that has happened before, but it's also possible that this is the president being disconnected and randomly throwing something out there. Elaine, there was a belief, just to jump in quickly, there was a belief that the president wanted a quick deal going into the weekend last week. Many people were saying that the president wants a quick deal. He's giving up on certain issues. He just wants to get this over the line for 2020. With these two tweets, can we put that to bed? It, you know, it depends because we have seen other presidential tweets. We've seen the tweet come out and then we've seen his advisors walk it back and really change it around. So we don't really know right now whether this will they'll walk it back and say, oh, no, no, he really actually didn't mean this and we'll we'll get a deal or whether this is going to disrupt the negotiations and keep him from getting that quick deal that he said he wanted. 
This is policymaking from the US side. Let's try and get in the heads of the Chinese just for a moment as well, Elaine, if we may. How do the Chinese respond to this? This clearly comes as a a surprise. The president puts out two tweets over the weekend. They're gearing up more than 100 of them to come to Washington, D.C. and what many people thought would be the final round of trade talks between the big bilateral. How do they think about this? Well, look, the world, you know, in the first year of the Trump presidency, whether the issue was NATO, the NATO alliance or trade or other things, um, the world was very, very confused about Donald Trump because he behaved and continues to behave without the stability of a normal president and a normal policymaking process. This is we are now three years into this, and I suspect that people around the world, there's a lot of evidence that, oh, they're getting used to this guy and that they have to wait at least 24 hours after their presidential tweet to see if that is American policy or not. That's my guess. And um, I think we'll know in a couple, we'll probably know by the end of the business day today, whether this is going to disrupt the talks or whether or not people will simply ignore it. Elaine Kmark with us with Brookings. Elaine, one more question. You know, I went into Kissinger's Diplomacy, which is a classic textbook that you read folks on like the waltz from Westphalian Europe forward. And I just (laughs) randomly picked out August of 1939, an actual handshake treaty. And this, of course, is Stalin and the Nazis, Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which folks was, you know, basically Joe Stalin Mm -hmm. lining up what he wanted to do with Germany before the U.S. got into the war. We, we have yep. this thing in our mind of like photo ops and shaking hands and pens being signed and papers being signed and all that. Are we completely removed from that on this U.S.-China discussion? No, I, 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 don't, I don't think so. I mean, I think we will still have um, papers being signed. I think eventually we'll have, we'll have some agreement on this. The, the difficulty here, I mean, look, to, to def- on the U.S. side, is that China does, it doesn't have a legal structure that guarantees that what we sign will actually happen in its government. Now, before, before they entered into these talks, they did make some changes in their laws trying to sort of preempt the U.S. objections to the way they do business. Yeah. But China, when it comes to the rule of law, is not really where we are. And I think that that makes the negotiating yeah. uh, more difficult. I'll get to leave it there. Elaine, thank you so much. Well timed. Thanks, Elaine. Mark with us with a wonderful book, sort of on presidents and how they behave in the White House. Let's bring in Margie Vitale, shall we? Wells Fargo Asset Management Senior Portfolio Manager. She joins us on the phone. Great to catch up with you, Margie. What are your talent clients this morning? What are you doing with your portfolio, if anything at all? Well, I think the outlook fundamentally is still pretty positive for the equity market and for interest rate stability. So I think this is just another blip we've seen relating to tariffs. Isn't going to have a material effect on our economic growth. And if the market stays down uh, materially, I'd say it's a great opportunity to add a little at pretty cheap prices. So, Margie, talk to me about Treasuries and the way they've been responding to the data quite recently. Even though the output numbers on payrolls were pretty good, beneath the surface, doubts emerged. The ISMs fueled further doubts, both on manufacturing and non-manufacturing, too. Have we hit the limits of where Treasury yields can break out to? 
Uh, I think we're still trapped in that trading range. I haven't seen any material change. Inflation still looks like it's going to stay under 2%. The economy looks as if it's growing, maybe a little slower than last year, but enough to sustain continued growth. And uh, the short part of the curve continues to be distorted by the Fed actions in holding such a large proportion of those shorter securities. So I think things look pretty good, and we're still trapped yeah. in that 2 to 2.5% range. Margaret, the number one thing I get from people on high yield if I quote an average yield of 6.48%, as you do in your note, when I get to a bundled portfolio, the yield always comes in lower. Where can I actually get a 6.5% yield? And how do I well, do that? Well, these days, that would mean you would be buying a single B or a single B minus. In other words, a very lower limit of respectable quality, below investment grade, high yield bonds. Uh, there's not a lot of spread between the better quality and lower quality high yield bonds, double Bs to single yeah. Bs. And you would have to buy a longer maturity, a newly issued 10-year bond. Can I diversify kind of my, this is critical, folks, what Ms. Patel just said. Can I take risk out by buying many of those longer dated garbagier bonds? Well, I wouldn't say too garbage. Uh, I would I would stick away from the triple C's. But really, duration isn't the risk in high yield bonds. It's really a default. So I think it's better to take longer duration, get that extra yield because it certainly it's worked for the last half half a dozen years. I see no sign at all oh. of yield spreads blowing. Did out. you guys just make up a word? No, Al from New Jersey just emailed in and he says more garbage. Garbage <laughs> is that a new bond market? Term? Morgan, I've been doing this for years. It's CFA. <laughs> Level five. Margie, let's talk about how high yield is priced at the moment. As Tom points out, the absolute yield is just north of 6%. On that basis, I think we're the lowest in about 12 months. Looking at the spread, though, over Treasuries, what are we at now? 350, 350-ish. That's not even the tightest since October. So how do you sort of look at things at the moment? Are we richly valued? What do you think? I think high yield is quite fairly valued, and when you look at the default rates and expected default rates, right now defaults unbelievably are less than 1%. It seems to me that you're actually getting extra yield compared to the true risk that you're really taking. So I would see spreads staying where they are or even going narrower. Margie, interesting to have you on the program to get those calls. Margie Patel there, Wells Fargo Asset Management Senior Portfolio Manager. What we thought we'd do is go to somebody with perspective. Long ago and far away, for example, in 1995, when I received in the gold-colored report or the dark green-colored thin report in very typewritten font, Doug Cass and I would look at the same line. There's no reason to do handsprings over 1995's gains. This was a year in which any fool could make a bundle in the stock market, and we did. To paraphrase President Kennedy, a rising tide lifts all yachts. His yacht is so large you can barely turn around in the Gulf of Mexico. We welcome Douglas Cass of Seabreeze Partners. Doug, this is not the Berkshire of 20 years ago, is it? As you know, back in 2013, um, Warren invited me to sit on the dais yeah. with him and Charlie Munger. Great honor. The uh, credentialed bear. And I wrote up an article on Real Money this morning about it. Um, I spent a long period of time, two months, 
and had two of my analysts, Nick and Kelly, embarking on a research project aimed at asking them questions that were respectful, hard-hitting, yeah. and that never been asked before. And considering how well-researched Buffett and the company was, it wasn't easy. And I went back uh, this weekend because Yahoo Finance actually just published uh, the videos for the old right, meetings. Right, so right. for the first time, I saw myself, and I looked very young then. Yeah. Um, but I made a, a bunch of points in the questions, uh, the most important of which, and my first question was that size matters. And I uh, made the case um, with Charlie and Warren, although Warren said, you have not convinced me to sell or short my own stock. Um, well, that, Doug, that, Doug. That, the company, that the company was becoming almost like an, uh, an S&P fund, a passive fund, almost exactly. like the spiders. Well, I mean, I mean, Goldman Sachs, last 10 years trailing, 6% a year. Berkshire's done way better, 13 14% per year. But how do we compare that? I mean, does Doug Cass think that Berkshire for the last decade has been a successful investment? I have to say it has been as a bundled conglomerate. It has been successful, but increasingly, Tom, um, the relative performance vis-a-vis, let's say, the senior index, the S&P, has been deflating. And he discussed it, Charlie discussed it, and Warren discussed it on Saturday. I watched the full um, annual meeting on Yahoo Finance. And he basically said it's something we can deal with. We've made so much money uh, in the past, and this is what one would expect. Size does matter. I think he did make a couple. uh, I think the one important thing that came out of the meeting on Saturday um, was that he highlighted that um, the unusual circumstances that exist today, that unemployment remains low, yet interest rates and inflation are not rising. And at the same time, the U.S. government continues to spend more money than it takes in. And as Buffett says, these conditions are not sustainable for the long term. And he said, quote, no economics textbook I know that was written in the first couple of thousand years that discussed even the possibility that you could have this sort of situation continue and have all variables stay more or less the same didn't exist. Paul Sweeney. And I agree. So, Doug, I know you been following this for such a long time. You've been out in Omaha so many times, and your perspective is certainly appreciated here, which brings me to my question, which is succession. How comfortable are you with what Mr. Buffett has done in terms of planning for the future of the company? Did you get access to, uh, did you feel enough access to uh, the heirs apparent? Well, one of my questions back in 2013, which I tried to make respectful, and it was a tough question to ask, and I think it made him uncomfortable. That year in 2013, leading into the annual meeting, uh, Warren said his son Howard would become non-executive chairman on his death. And my question was, given the fact that he basically has never made large capital allocation decisions, never traded stocks, and was basically a farmer his whole life, was that appropriate? And um, he sort of shifted in his seat. Um, and I didn't think he gave me a very good answer. Now, uh, in terms of operating people to replace him, after all, he's 89 years old. Charlie's almost 95. Um, he's got Ajit and uh, George Abel, and I think both of them would be a great addition. Okay. But 
you know, this company has grown larger, and again, it's yeah. becoming co- sort of a GDP type of company. Doug Cass with us, Seabreeze. He'll be with us through the half hour, which is a joy. Doug Cass on Amazon right now. You've been flogging it uh, at Seabreeze Partners with all your different communications. How behind is Mr. Buffett to the Bezos party? Well, I would say that the, you know, Amazon, as you know, uh, I bought it around 1380 um, in, de- in late December last year, and it became my largest uh, long position. Uh, the negative for Amazon is that there were 45 buy recommendations and no sell recommendations. And that, as you know, as a baseball fan, is not a great score. The second thing is the greatest non-tech investor of all time, Warren Buffett, has decided to buy the stock, albeit uh, you know, one of his boys either out yeah, yeah, yeah. the decision. Look, um, <clears throat> I, I think it's pretty irrelevant, and my views on Amazon are quite clear. It's the supreme okay. disruptor, and it has established an insurmountable first mover advantage. Let's do this. Let's come back. Doug Cass with us. We've got lots to talk about and getting tons of emails to get a Cassian update on Twitter. And I know Paul Sweeney can talk uh, media with Doug Cass as well. He's with CB's Partners, always controversial. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.